1: week 11 of our
0: series on Isaiah um, 1 through 12. And um, so we are in chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, whether digitized or paperized, that's not a word, so don't use that in your (laughs) your uni essay or anything, okay? Um, please do open with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Last week we looked at Isaiah 10 in which Isaiah was warning God's people that the Assyrian empire was coming. It was a certainty. The Assyrians thought themselves to be so mighty and unstoppable that they deserved this. Isaiah reveals, however, that Assyria was really just doing the bidding of what God had ordained. God had planned that God alone is their source of protection in the midst of this, and we are told that God ultimately preserves a remnant of this of the of God's people of this nation. And so, here in chapter eleven, we get this quick glimpse. Of, the, of what God will use, or the one God will use, to deliver his people and then share a vision of what a truly transformed kingdom could look like. So we will look at this in three parts. Uh, let me, uh, so the right king, the righteous kingdom, and the one who saves. Let me read the, the text for us. 16 verses, not as long this time, but I'll read the whole chapter. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations, and he will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth." The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. So the right king Way back in chapter 1, Isaiah told us, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. But he doesn't tell us what will happen, like how this will all happen. And then in chapter 7, we're told of a king who would be born of a virgin. Chapter 9, we're again told of the birth of the most extraordinary person, one of whom it could be said that is a wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace history is a wash with corrupt kings and rulers another one born in the royal line may not actually sound that promising So let me use an example from history. I am afraid to use any current example of any leader. I don't want to offend anyone or show any kind of weird bias. Um, But I'm sure that you will see patterns in all of the rulers we've seen in history. So let's look at King Henry VIII, a famous one of England. He was born in 1491, so more than 500 years ago, born in royalty, and is famous for his abuse of power, especially when it came to his marriages. He went against all norms, broke away from the Catholic Church and the Pope himself in order to divorce his first wife because she did not bear him a son. He had his next wife beheaded. All in all, Henry married six times. As the song goes, divorce beheaded died, divorce beheaded survived. Henry desperately wanted an heir to the throne. His first two wives gave him only daughters and at last he had a son with his third wife. By this time, the royal court had seen his abuse of power and his quick temper and his infidelity. And so when his son Edward was born, do you think people were expecting Edward to be complete, to bring complete transformation to England? Probably not.
1: Probably they thought, oh, here's another arrogant, spoiled king, right? That's the track record
0: of history. The track record in Jerusalem was not different. Even the best kings had their moments of greed, pride, outright disobedience to God. Even David forced himself on Bathsheba and covered it up by having her husband
1: killed in battle. I think that's why Isaiah goes the extra mile here to
0: to describe the king to come as God's anointed, as the Messiah. This one, Isaiah declares, would not be more of the same, but would be entirely different. So let's look at what the text says about this king to come. 7. Observations about the king to come from chapter 11. So one, he comes from the line of David. Now, actually, in the passage, it says from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being David's father. The Messiah would be in the royal line of David. And so the royal lineage is there, and he is therefore heir to the throne. But it's interesting that he says Jesse. Now, we, uh, I, I'm not a mind reader, and we don't know exactly why he does. But perhaps it's a
1: reminder that God once took a peasant family and made them royalty. a shepherd, A shepherd's family. And so it shows
0: God's work of orchestrating this all along the
1: way. Number 2 the spirit of god is upon him. When we see the
0: spirit of god in the old testament we see god's favor on a new king. The line of david had tragically been filled with kings who seemed like they were filled with a different spirit than that of god. So this rightful king, the Messiah, would be given wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, and knowledge in the fear of the Lord. When the Spirit of God moves, things do not say, stay the same. One, one writer says this, the Spirit breaks loose, making all things
1: staggeringly new. New. Thirdly, full submission to God. We talked about fearing God last week and the dangers of
0: allowing our fear of man or our fears of other things to overtake us and that God alone is rightfully feared. Here it says that his delight shall be in the fear of God. What an unusual way of putting that, that he delights in fearing God. So not only would this king, king, have an appropriate fear of God, but it would bring him joy to do so. And it's because he knows fully, he trusts fully that God's judgments are pure and sure. They rhyme when you're written, written out, but they don't rhyme when you say it. It's the weird thing about the English language. Number four, he judges based on righteousness. Again, this, this is a little bit odd to, to, say, to see at first because it says he's not basing his judgments on what can be seen. Um, and so if we were to enter a courtroom trial today, All that can be offered really is
1: what can be seen or heard. But the number of wrong convictions causes us to doubt the certainty of this approach that we can see and hear wrongly at times. This king judges with righteousness.
0: So, how does he do that? Wouldn't he have to know people's hearts to, to, to be able to do that? Wouldn't he have to have a complete understanding of the context of what had happened? Yes, yes, and yes. In other words, this king would have to see
1: into people's lives as God himself sees. Only he who is pure of heart can judge with righteousness. Fifth, he cares for the downtrodden. How many times have we
0: heard politicians make grand promises about helping those
1: in need? And they sound so sincere when they say it. Enough that we sometimes believe them sometimes.
0: Throughout the Bible, poverty is clearly a concern of God's. He cares about the plight of the poor and
1: those that have been pushed aside for one reason or another. In the Bible, the blame on the the, the cause of poverty is really
0: addressed to the whole community. Now, I want to be careful how I say this, um, because this becomes a a point of tension within uh, the church sometimes. This does not mean that the poor do not take responsibility for their own actions. I'm not giving the poor a pass in this regard. But there is a recognition that there is much that happens that is out of their hands. So just as one example, the, the I don't want to go too far in this rabbit trail, but just as one example, Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, um, it, it more or less lays out a blueprint for what Godly society should look like, especially in the the time of ancient Israel. In chapter 15, it, it describes, it basically says three times that you should have no poor among you. In other words, this charge is not just given to you poor people should not be poor anymore. Actually, the charge goes to the whole community. You should
1: have no poor among you. When the rightful king consolidates his rule,
0: there will be no more poor among us. Now we're reminded in Jesus' time, he says, you will always have the poor with you. It's a mark of the broken world in which we live. And then as we move further into the the early church in Acts chapter 4, it actually says that they had no one uh, with need within the church. In other words, this church was beginning to act out these kingdom values the values of the Messiah. Okay, I'll move on.
1: Sixthly, which is hard to say, he condemns the wicked.
0: Works of evil cannot and should not be overlooked. It's it's noteworthy that he executes his
1: uh, punishment with his mouth. the breath of his lips, and his voice.
0: The the book of Revelation describes the divine ability to bring God's full judgment to bear with his mouth. Um, Hear this from Revelation 19, verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will
1: tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. So he is both a gracious and loving
0: king, but he is also one who will not abide by evil and wickedness. And so seventh, he is dressed as a warrior. Verse
1: five.
0: A few months back, we we went through the book of Ephesians, and in Ephesians chapter six, We uh, learned about the spiritual armor that we as believers need to be equipped to face a world where evil does persist. Our model for this is the Messiah. Here we have the rightful king prepared to do battle in a world sinking lower and lower into a pit of
1: betrayal and greed and oppression. His, his battle armor
0: is not that of missiles and tanks and
1: bulletproof vests, but they are of a spiritual nature. So second, second larger
0: point, the righteous kingdom. A kingdom unlike what we know Um, We can look back in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 4 and see descriptions of this time to come. In chapter 2, we're told of the word of God going forth to the nations and peace as such that people convert their weapons into farming equipment. Last night, um, Karen's got some family visiting, and so we were in We went to KLCC last night. Um, It was pretty rockin' place, Saturday night. But we went into a hat shop and there was a hat there that said, peace will save the world.
1: Now that's a lovely, lovely sentiment, but it's garbage,
0: right? Peace is not, there's no force behind peace, right? It's a state of things. Unless peace is like, maybe there's somebody named peace. I don't know. But otherwise, it's a fairly, it's a lovely hat. If you have the hat, it's wear it with pride. But ultimately, there needs to be someone who creates peace, that forges the pathway of peace peace. Chapter four, we're told of a place where God's glory radiates to all present and that the bloodstains of sins have been cleansed. Here in, a, in chapter 11, we're given a different picture. This one could be featured in National Geographic. The wolf and the lamb, the leopard and the young goat, the lion and the fattened calf, all just hanging out getting along, eating grass and straw together. If you watch TV nature shows, this is not what you see. It's like the kind of violence we let our kids watch, right? But those nature shows, they're, they're violent, right? Especially if you're one of the the, the low ones that just the... The prey and rather than the predator. I saw a clip last week of some lions trying to cross a river. And there was a hippopotamus that felt threatened by the lions. The the hippo was in the water. And while the lions were trying to cross, the hippo charged at the lions now, I don't know, you know, don't place bets. But if you're betting on the lion or the hippo, don't bet on the lion. That hippo was
1: amazing. Faster than Michael Phelps in the, in the water. Hippos are fierce. But let me just say, there's a little bit of a symbolism there that we all do this, right? When we feel threatened, there's this
0: impulse that comes out in us. If we feel someone's threatening our work and our job, our immediate decisions maybe aren't the most God-glorifying
1: decisions. Maybe they aren't the ones that are Pursuing peace. This
0: is our world. It's not a harmonious world. There is violence. We turn our backs on each other. We fight over petty, petty things. The world that Isaiah describes, it takes us back to
1: the time of Eden. Eden the garden, imagine your kids
0: or the kids in our congregation out on a playground swinging. There's a lion just hanging out over next to them. There's a cobra slithering past.
1: This is what Isaiah is describing, and everyone's comfortable. Everyone's good with that. How radically different, right? But it would be because we don't need to fear those things, right? And they
0: don't need to fear each other. Verse nine says, the whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Which is, You know, waters covering the sea, you know, think about that for a minute. I mean, that's complete coverage. We have to constantly remember
1: the Lord because we can so easily forget the Lord. And so many have never acknowledged him. So imagine a world where every
0: living creature knows God bows down before
1: God in pure majesty. The nations that we know,
0: the nations that we know all too well, um, verses 10 through 16, they take us through a quick list of nations that have come up against God's people, nations great and small, Um, that were once enemies and no longer posed the same threat. In fact, in verse 10, there's even an invitation
1: to people from the nations to inquire of God. What's the cause for the
0: hostility of the nations between these nations in the Bible? What's the cause for the hostility between nations today? It's not just between nations though, it's within nations. Some of you go to work knowing there will be hostility, maybe a boss, maybe a colleague, maybe a customer that you know will come charging at you. Not not like the hippo, but more in a verbal or email
1: sense. If you have a boss that charges at you like a hippo, (laughs) run. Every time we are jealous,
0: every time we gossip, every time we work to freeze others out, we are taking part in this hostility. And so the gap is just far too large. If you read the newspaper all the way through one day
1: with your kind of sensitivity raised for all of the evil happening,
0: it would be enough to convince you that righteousness is far from any nation. And imagine then if you were a speed reader and you were able to read every newspaper all across
1: the world just one day, all of the things that took place. And then imagine, like even the society pages, right? In the midst
0: of people starving, in the midst of so much need, and then there are people, I don't know, you know, throwing away money. Even that is is a, a kind of evil, right? And then you take it even further to to know that there is so much that happens in the world that never gets reported
1: in the newspaper. Imagine you take all of that in. It would crush you. It would crush all of us. It would make us angry. And it should. It is... A wonder that God does not bring his wrath immediately. It is
0: a, it is just simply the grace of God that his mercy prevails. The gap between where we are and his kingdom is just so vast. So let's look at the one who saves. A number of years ago, I had a visiting class, seminary class from California that came to KL. And and one of the the days we went to uh, KL Tower and we went to the the viewing deck up at the top and we were finished looking at the city from, from up on high Um, We went down in the lift and uh, there were eight of us all together in the lift. And then somewhere in our journey from the clouds to the ground, the lift stopped. Now, it's a big concrete cylinder, right? So you have no idea where you are. We could have been one foot from the ground. I don't think so. But um, we were somewhere in the middle. And um, we, you know, tried pushing buttons and stuff. Nothing was happening. We pried the doors open. And, I mean, it's not a normal building. It's just a concrete wall facing us. So we had no idea where we were. Um, We were, it was, we called the little button, you know, there's that little emergency button. And it went actually directly to the Otis elevator company. I actually later met the the young woman who was interning at Otis who actually took the call. Um, She was in a Bible study that I was leading. But yeah, so we called and they said, we're sending a technician, but it was rush hour in KL. And so it took a while. It was, we were there for over two hours and there was one young woman in our Lift, who really needed the restroom. And we were about to just pick a corner for the restroom purposes and just all move to the other <laughs> corner, opposite corner of the lift. Um, but then finally, about two and a half hours in, we feel the, the lift kind of like uneasily moving. And it's like as if someone was hand-cranking the lift and they, they moved it. To an access floor. So finally, there we see two faces. We see, like, you know, uh, kind of the, the lift is halfway to a floor. And so it's, you know, wall up here, and then there's space. And we see the technician who's sweating profusely and he looks kind of anxious. And he's like, quick, quick. And he starts pulling us out very hurriedly. He looks concerned, which suddenly you realize there's an element of danger here that we, we don't know, we don't fully understand. So one by one, he rescued us, pulled us out, and we got to this access floor and then took an, a service lift down to the, the ground floor, saved. The management of Kale Tower then said, we are so sorry this happened. We would like to treat you to a meal up at the top. (laughs) Would you have said yes? We did not say yes.
1: When we were in the lift, we knew we needed help. We knew we needed a savior,
0: but we weren't really aware of just how badly we needed a savior. We weren't aware of the impending danger until we saw a frantic technician pulling us out as fast
1: as he possibly could. I think that is true for us today. We're not fully
0: aware of. The, just the wretchedness
1: that is all around us, that is within us. We, we don't, we often,
0: um, I don't know about you, but I think it's a human tendency. We, we compare ourselves, not as bad as a drug dealer, not as bad as a human trafficker. I'm pretty good compared to them. But do we compare ourselves to God's pure holiness? Do we compare ourselves to one who is truly good? When we were in that lift, we we knew, we did all the things that we could, and we knew we couldn't do anything to save us. Abraham Heschel is a Jewish writer. In other words, he did not, believe Jesus was the Messiah, and yet he recognizes in the Old Testament prophets this clear need for a Messiah. So I'll read this somewhat longer quote. Had the prophets relied on human resources for justice and righteousness, on man's ability to fulfill all of God's commands demands, on man's power to achieve redemption, they would not have insisted upon the promise of messianic redemption. For messianism implies that any course of living, even the supreme efforts of man by himself must fail in redeeming the world. In other words, human history is not sufficient unto itself. Man's conscience is timid, while the world is ablaze with agony. His perception of justice is shallow often defective, and his judgment liable to deception. Heschel's description of humanity is in clear contrast to to what Isaiah is now presenting as the Messiah. And this is what Heschel's point is, is the prophet saw that the only real hope could be in this Messiah, the right king, the one who God sends. And it was not merely that he would become a model
1: for us to be better. No, that won't work. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was born, in the line of Jesse,
0: um, we began to see the one who God had prepared. In Luke Chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, we're told that Jesus entered the synagogue and he read this, quoting from Isaiah 60, 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This description is really quite similar, astoundingly similar to the description in Isaiah 11. For Isaiah, and for Isaiah, this refers to the same Messiah to come. And when Jesus read these words, he said this, he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. If ever in history, there was a worthy moment for a mic drop, this was it. Jesus said, I am the long-promised Messiah, the promised King. The day is still coming when he will fully establish his kingdom. And quite frankly, it is because of God's mercy that he has waited Because his kingdom is a righteous one.
1: And only those who have been made righteous by the Messiah can enter. If you want to change, you can't do it by yourself. But Jesus can. The same spirit who came upon Jesus
0: will come upon those who believe in Jesus. He gives liberty to those in captivity. He gives
1: sight to the blind. This scripture has been fulfilled. So today, Jesus is our only answer. So is Jesus your rightful king, or do you still bow to another? Will you pray with me? Father, we we thank you for this amazing promise. Father, we
0: it's so I mean to to imagine a, a cobra around a young child is just hard to even think about. And so, God, we um, just wonder in imagination what kind of kingdom you have prepared for us. So God I pray that you would allow us give us eyes
1: to see inwardly. Where is our heart before you?
0: Who do we who we say we bow to is not necessarily who we actually bow to. So God I pray that for all of us here that that you would use this time to help us evaluate and those things that we need to to let go of that we would and father that you would show us how we can more readily submit ourselves to you may we delight in fearing you father we we ask that um that through all of this, we would be more clear in our knowledge of who you are, and that you have come to save us, and that we must rely on you in that regard.
1: It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.